0: Hi everyone, I'm Sarah Kachansky and welcome to episode 70 of InsureTech Insider. Although things are looking up in some places, we are still recording remotely. Um, And this is great because it gives us an opportunity to speak to people from all around the world. So we would love your suggestions um, on as diverse a range of people as possible that we could get on the show because we want to hear from all aspects of the industry. Do get in touch by emailing podcast11fs.com with your suggestions of people we should speak to. So today we are going to be talking about LGBT plus in the insurance space. Specifically, we're going to take a look at the state of diversity and inclusion in the insurance industry, how it can improve businesses, as well as what insurance products are currently available for people from minority groups. As always, I'm not alone. And today I'm joined by my co-host, Nigel Walsh. How are you doing today, Nigel?
1: I'm fine and dandy. Thank you very much. I'm back into full on exercising outdoors and my stomach is not liking it too much at all.
0: Well, that's why you shouldn't exercise. It's bad for your health. It's widely known. (laughs) Um, We are also joined today by three amazing guests. First up, we have Steve Wardlaw, chair of Emerald Life. Steve, welcome to the show. How are you?
2: I am very well. I am not in the exercise regime yet, I have to say. So glad this is radio
0: yes a good man i don 't i don't believe in exercise As i said i think it 's bad for one's health um, so I know a lot about emerald life because I was actually introduced to your company by a good friend of mine uh dan hudson who um produces and uh, and makes basically the podcast A Gay and A Non-Gay. Um, but for people who are, are less au okay fait with what it is you, you do, could you please give us a quick overview of Emerald?
2: Sure. A uh, super quick overview because I know we're going to be talking in some more detail later. Uh, Emerald was set up in 2016 and it was and is still uh, currently the UK's only insurer dedicated to diversity and equality, particularly looking at the LGBT plus community and women in relation to product service and advertising how you're perceived is a very important issue when, when you buy insurance.
0: Brilliant. Well, we are very pleased to have you along. Uh, next up, we have George Weeks, operations team leader working in the insurance industry. Um, thank you so much for coming along, George. Can you tell us a bit about yourself and how you ended up in the insurance industry? Maybe the potted version, if it's if it's a tale that would be better suited to a long night and a bottle of wine.
3: No, thank you. Thank you for inviting me to, to the podcast. Um, so my name's George Weeks. Uh, I work in the insurance industry as an operations team leader in syndicate operations. Um, I started my career six years ago uh, working as an underwriting assistant in marine Menji. Uh, shortly after, I then went to uh, Marsh as an agri-exposure analyst. And now for the past two years, I've been working as an operations team leader and thoroughly enjoying it.
0: Brilliant. Well, it's always good to hear somebody's enjoying their work, which as you, you, I say that, but on this podcast, you'd be amazed what people come out with. I, I try to remind them it's not a therapy session. Um, and last, but by no means least, we have Teresa Farrenson, who is Customer Experience and Integration Lead at Aon and founding member of Link. Um, amazing to have you with us, Teresa. Um, I think we probably all know about Aon,
4: but perhaps you could tell us a little bit more about Link. Okay, so... Uh yeah, I think like many people I didn't plan to get into insurance. Um <laughs> so but I uh, did a degree in in uh, IT and, and technology. So that took me into an IT organization focused on insurance and then my next steps were more firmly into the IT departments of um insurance firms including Aon. Um link uh, the LGBT insurance network was founded in well we had our our launch party in in March 2013 um so we've been going for well we ha- we had our a, a much celebrated fifth anniversary um hosted by the CII in the great hall shortly before they left um and now in our, my math serves me correctly and our eighth year um Hold up fingers if I'm getting it wrong, gang. Uh, So uh, what we try and do, it's a professional network um, aimed at LGBT plus um, professionals in the industry and their friends and allies, so you don't have to be gay to to come along to our events at all. In fact, we encourage people to come along um, just to find out more. But we try and tackle inclusion in a couple of ways. One, we provide a network for our members to mingle um, and uh, monthly, um, at least, and usually try and do some events in 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 the interim. Uh, But also, we then work with organisations to try and improve their diversity inclusion in respect of the LGBT um, side. uh by giving advice um giving uh, giving them pointers um, and also helping them to by just co-hosting events with them so we're giving them an opportunity to perhaps uh collaborate with other um organizations in insurance who are either on the same part of the journey because sometimes that creates a good dynamic or perhaps somebody that's you know a lot more progressed um and that that gives a different dynamic again so um that's a, a lot of what we
0: do Okay, thank you so much, Teresa. Um, So let's get started. Let's set the scene by talking about some stats that have been actually been provided by Link. Um, So Stonewall has found that concealing sexual orientation at work reduces productivity by up to 30%. Uh, People who have come out in supportive workplaces are more creative, loyal and productive. Organizations that rate highly in both diversity and inclusion are 70% more likely to have success in new markets and 45% more likely to improve their market share, according to the Centre for Talent and Innovation. Um, And last by no means least, diverse workforces have 19% better employee retention, 42% greater team commitment and 57% better team collaboration. Again, that's from the Centre for Talent Innovation. So some pretty compelling statistics there to start us off. Um, what we're going to do, first of all, is we're going to take a look at the insurance industry and talk about how diverse and inclusive the space is at the moment. Um, so, so starting with just kind of a general question, what are your perceptions of the insurance industry and the, the companies you have experience of um, as workplaces when it, when it comes to diversity? A, kind of what they're like, and B, you know, if there are any, anything that you've seen that people are moving towards trying to be more inclusive?
2: I'm happy to um, kick off. I'm actually, much as I'm a great fan of of, um, Link, I want to not challenge those stats, but perhaps take a step back. I think they are right. I think if you bring your whole self to work, as we like to say, organisations are better, more inclusive organisations get more from their employees and their employees are happier, which is what we want. I think if you look at the fairly terrible diversity levels in the industry, you've got to take a step back. The fact is you can only be inclusive when you've got various people of different ethnicities, genders, sexual orientations, et cetera, in the organization. I think the problem you have in insurance is it is often perceived as such an unattractive space for anybody who isn't a white, cisgendered, heterosexual man. That part of our problem is we're fishing in a very small pool anyway when we're trying to amplify issues around diversity. So I think the first issue is, is what are we doing about, you know, Companies getting more people in who are more diverse as a start, and and at the same time perhaps amplifying what they do as a way to get more people in again. It's like a virtuous circle, I would hope.
4: Teresa, please just jump in. Uh, so I've had the privilege of being able to, through through being a part of Link since since inception um, of seeing different lots of different aspects, and I, I would I would agree with you, Steve that the industry isn't brilliant in the round. But I can see a lot of companies trying to do a lot better um, some are more mature than others um, and I'm not suggesting for for a second that there isn't a chunk of work that still needs to be done in many respects in all of the in all of the diversity dimensions that we've spoken about um, you know gender and you know uh, gender pay gap. BAME paper gap is the next thing on the horizon, I think, that will get picked up soon. Um, Sexual orientation, disability. You know, if you look around the London market, you would still be shocked by the absence of diversity there. Um, But I would say that I have seen nuggets of good practice where organisations have tried to do um, uh, events that have tried to focus at different um, elements of the upcoming talent. Through doing, uh, you know, days f- for um, uh, f- for different groups, you know. Uh, so we might get in local kids from the, from the local schools, which by and large are generally um, a very multicultural, to come in and and, ex- and find out, you know, about more about the insurance industry. Uh, so I can see some good stuff, but does it necessarily lead to good hires? Um and, and or once we get them into the um into the graduate or the apprenticeship schemes, um, you know, are they retained? I think those are those are important questions because, you know, if you haven't got if that people aren't coming into an inclusive environment, then it's like creating a gigantic revolving door and they won't stay. So, yeah, I can see we're doing a lot better in early careers hires. I think there's still a lot to be done in, in you know, experienced hire. That's really interesting because, George, I think you've actually done some research, have you not,
0: into why individuals from minority groups actually tend to, they don't necessarily, um, we haven't necessarily had a problem getting them coming in, but it's actually they tend to leave earlier. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about that and perhaps, you know, maybe colour that with some of your own experiences if it's relevant?
3: No, definitely. I, I, I agree with Teresa's point and Steve's point. I think it's something where we, we, we perhaps focus ourselves on the graduate side of, of hiring and we look towards uh, kind of getting cohorts into different, varying different companies and only a certain number can stay. And because there's just not enough, there's not enough uh, people leaving the market at a certain level for them to move in. And so it's not something that we want to necessarily uh, get rid of competition amongst, you know, insurance companies and how they pay and things like that. It's about trying to understand the fundamental reason why why graduates from uh, perhaps, so If we if, let's look at uh, an ethnic background. So it's something where at the moment in the census, uh, what we have is it's looking at categories of people and you have to assign yourself to those categories, those labels. If we're then comparing it against the data that we collect in our organization, we aren't really able to marry those two things up. So trying to get down to the fundamental cause of why people are leaving so early on in their career, you can't, you can't identify from a high level. You have to truly start asking employees, why are they leaving? And understanding those causes so for example um, if we if we were to look at um the so i looked at a study i, I got the information off the government website um, and compared the data from industry against uh, so the industry of insurance versus how many people were in in population wise in the uk split into england wales scotland i then looked at okay so each of these individual groups if we're considering uh, the black population, the black population, as identified on the census, compared to the data that we can push together and find and marry together, there is approximately three to four percent of people that are joining the insurance industry. If we are to compare that against people that identify as Chinese, uh, on uh, Asian Chinese as the census option, what we're finding is that there's actually seven percent, seven to eight percent of people that are in the insurance industry of that population group, and so we can't look at diversity and inclusion on a broad scale and paint everyone with the same brush. We have to look at the individual, um, individual facets that make up these these protected characteristics or these protected groups, and try to find out the reason. So it's something where I think what we need to do is. We need to ensure that while companies are looking to uh, streamline our diversity and inclusion programs down uh, from perhaps uh, individual groups such as sexual orientation, uh, such as um, ethnic minorities, um, such as gender, what we need to, and they're trying to move them perhaps into one group, we need to encourage them to understand why we're doing it in that way.
0: Absolutely. It's a point that I think I've, I've made on, on other podcasts, um, but it's just a, a general point that I think applies to, to, to all these kind of studies. And when you're looking at these things is, is you need to disaggregate the data. You can't just say this, is, this, is, this average applies, you know, that that's never going to work whether you're looking at gender or ethnicity or any other kind of uh, characteristic, as you say. Um, Steve, did you want to follow up with something there?
2: Yeah. And it was actually an em- em- emphasis on that point. And I think you've got to be very careful that if you look at uh, the letters LGBT and and sometimes Q, sometimes not, and the plus, it's, you know, if you, if you talk about targets as well, if you want. So if a company has a target, you've got to make sure that they are filling that target properly and they're not just um, quota filling. So when you say we have 6% of our company identifies LGBT, the challenge back really should be, look, I'm one of them. You say, how many of that, have that group are actually white gay men? Because if you look at the kind of pyramid of privilege, white gay men tend to be at the top in the LGBT. We're we're the least frightening, if you like. I'm using that in the kind of mindset of insurance sector. If I walk into a room, I'm cisgendered, male, white, and I wear a suit. So you know, nobody, it doesn't come across in any way odd. And in a way, I'm almost slightly hidden. So I think when you say LGBT, what you have to be very careful of is that people don't quote stuff with white gay men and you don't say, what about a bisexual woman of colour or something like that? So You've got to really say, are we doing this? Pro- we might be doing it within the letter of our quota, but are we doing it within
1: the spirit of our quota?
0: Yeah, it's really interesting. Um Nigel, did you have a point there?
1: Yeah, this the, I mean, this the, this conversation, this debate is, is fascinating because I think he, he, the, the recent tragic killing of uh, George Floyd has has raised loads around um BAME, ethnicity and so much more that I think, I mean, I'm... I'm I genuinely believe the insurance industry is open. I believe, you know, to Theresa's point, the, the work that Dive In have done, the work that we've done generally, and the way we've seen the communities change over the last 10 years, it used to be described famously as, you know, male, stale and pale. And I do think it's changed dramatically. Has it changed enough? Probably not, but that's true probably for every industry. And that's not to, not, not for a minute to say uh, we should stop. But actually, um, Steve, to your point when you mentioned lbtq plus and uh george you mentioned bamed earlier is the whole grouping community labels are these correct these days because i you know i was on a, a a conversation recently where someone used the word bame and, and i was told you shouldn't be using bame anymore we shouldn't be grouping everyone in in, the, in those sorts of areas so uh, i i'm straight right, I, i'm the guy you described at the outset apart from wearing a suit you know um does that need to change in itself? Do we still need the labels as as described to to talk about the communities or not or what what's your take on that? I think
0: Teresa, um, you you know you at Link work uh, very hard, don't you, on on, on working with insurance companies um, when it comes to diversity and inclusion and how they can make sure that they are doing it, kind of going about it in a way that um, achieves, you know, the, d- the desired result. Which, as we've all agreed on here, is um, a very broad range of people from all sorts of backgrounds with all sorts of characteristics with all sorts of you know um, self identified uh, traits, if you like, um, in a, in a in a workplace because. it it makes the workplace better (laughs) and then the products that you get at the end of it are better and all in all who doesn't want both of those things um but Teresa maybe there's something in the the work that you've done that picks up on that kind of like if we're going to say we want to include these people you have to work at which people they are in the first place and then how to
4: appeal to them well I think the whole topic of labels is is, is complex nuanced and and interesting because you need to I think they're necessary, right? We as humans apply labels to put things into boxes as a way to shortcut, take various shortcuts, social or otherwise in in the world. You know, is this dangerous? That's fire. Yes, it is. So, and all things that look like fire are probably dangerous and should be avoided too. So I think the letters are a good place to start, but they're not the place to end. We should, as George has said earlier, um, regard in people as individuals. And, you know, we speak a lot about intersectionality um, now in the inclusion and diversity sphere. And that is... Y- y- You know, about identifying these uh, people as individuals, that the fact is that they have, everybody has a gender, um, everybody has a sexual orientation, everybody has race and culture, and we need to be able to evolve our conversations that we're grappling with all of those. Um, because just as as you'll end up with a you know a, a faint argument amongst the LGBT community where we can get very uh, you know uh, introspective about all of the letters and whether they're enough and whether we feel sufficiently included if our letter isn't in the standard four letter bundle you can have exactly the same conversation with the BAME BME POC whatever the the acronym is about how each of those identify because some people won't like the term BAME other, uh, and would prefer BME. Others, perhaps POC, others, different terminology. Um, so, you know, they're they're complex and evolving. Ultimately, it comes down to, in my opinion, you ask people about themselves and discover how they identify and just take it at face value, you know. Um, I'm not. I identify as non-binary, which means that I don't have, don't really associate with either the male terminology or the female terminology. A lot of people who identify as non-binary prefer the pronouns they/them rather than he/she or or, or he/hers. So, again, it's complex. Um, I, I g- agree. I think so much of this is.
0: Um, about I think and we're particularly bad at this I think in the UK is whatever whatever it is becomes an elephant in the room and you just don't ask or don't talk about it but actually nine times out of ten most people are happy to answer the question and would rather you had asked the question, uh, rather than making an assumption in the first place. Because if you give somebody an opportunity to say, actually, thank you for asking, this is what I prefer, or this is how I'd like to be addressed, or even something as simple as, um, this is how my name is pronounced. You know, that's, that's actually not right. You've just been making an assumption. Then if we kind of open those conversations up, um, everyone becomes a bit more open generally, and you have everyone has a greater understanding. Um, I'm just going to let uh, Steve and, and then George, did you want to jump in on that? Because then I'm going to move us on to an ad read, which I will try my best to do quickly and smoothly so you don't have to listen to me <laughs> doing it
2: repeatedly. <laughs> no, I think that's I mean, absolutely right. I mean, I think you talk about, you know, particularly when you get... And the other thing I'd add is, of course, these things evolve over time. So uh, non-binary is a space where we had a position two years ago in Emerald and that position has changed because I think the non-binary community has taken a more collective view on terminology, addresses, titles, things like that. So, so the other thing is don't be too scared to ask and don't be too scared to ask again because you will be corrected on terminology that's a couple of years out of date every now and again. It's not a problem.
4: Yeah, non-binary didn't exist when I was growing up.
2: Yeah, and gender reassignment surgery is a phrase that was absolutely okay three years ago, but you wouldn't use it again now, gender affirmation or gender confirmation surgery. So these things evolve.
0: I think there's also an attitudinal thing to take as well as if somebody corrects you, don't take it personally. Just say, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry that I didn't mean to use that. I'm sorry that, it's, it's very hard to say, isn't it? I'm sorry that phrase offends you. That isn't what you mean at all. I'm sorry. Please tell me what I should be using instead of what you would prefer. But don't get on your high horse and say, oh, well, you know, that's what I've heard all the news using or that's what, you know, this particular person uses. Um, George, did you want to give us any final points on that?
3: I, I think it's it's very interesting. It's something where I think labels as, as Teresa said, it's it's each, each to the individual. And I think that while perhaps uh, and there there are many years that we, we've gone through it being okay to assume someone is straight, to go through and assume someone's gender as male or female. And now we start now we have to start looking to ourselves and as Teresa says and as Steve says, asking what what, is, what pronoun would you like to be identified as? Because if we don't ask those questions, we won't move forward and we have to start looking internally. And as, as Nigel said, there are things such as George Floyd, the, the tragic disaster in the US that has highlighted and brought the conversation back to the, back to the media and back to, as some people may refer to and in quotations, mainstream. Because it is, we all are aware, in the black community, and those that have uh, family members that are black, they are aware of the issues that we, we face. And as we're seeing in the LGBT community, we are all aware that there are there are instances that are unacceptable. And now we need to gain, we need to gather allies, and we need to work together to 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 build a better. To, well, I don't want to be cheesy, but build a better future.
4: I agree with your cheese.
0: it's all right we can all have a bit of cheese every now and again so we're going to move on to talk about um some of the the products that perhaps are are um you know particularly aimed and targeted at minority groups to to ensure inclusivity that way but before we do that i would just like to tell you about some of our other shows so are you switching up your morning routine now we're all social distancing well so are we in fact we've started two live shows to help kickstart your day on both sides of the atlantic On the Fintech Insider Breakfast Show, we chat about the latest news with a series of industry guests, all calling in remotely, of course. It goes live on LinkedIn Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, and Friday at 8.30 a.m. BST. Just follow 11 colon FS on LinkedIn. And if you're US-based and 8.30 BST is just a little bit too early, do not worry. We haven't forgotten you. We also have a US option. Fintech Insider Breakfast Show US is hosted by Sam Moore and goes live at 10.30 ET on Wednesdays, so grab a coffee and tune in. For the US show, just follow 11 colon FS on LinkedIn to get the daily notification. And for both shows, don't forget to add your comments in the thread and please do reach out if you have any suggestions of people we should get on the show. You can do that by emailing breakfastshow at 11fs.com. So um, now we're going to be talking about a look at the insurance products that are currently available for LGBT plus consumers um, specifically to start with. Um, Can you guys give me some examples perhaps of our offerings Can uh, to start with be discriminatory or exclusionary for this community? Just so we start by getting um, a a grounding and understanding why perhaps specific tailored products might be needed.
2: I guess I was going to come my way, wasn't it? Absolutely, it was kind
0: of set up for you. We teed it (laughs) up.
2: I'm on it. I'm on it. So again, I feel like I'm not quite Princess Negativa on this one. But take it a step back. I think the first thing is when we talk about exclusion, we talk about exclusion and and discrimination, and I think they come from two, two different aspects. Discrimination may be in terms of how you're treated or the policy wording. It may not suit your individual circumstances because it's been designed by and for largely white straight men. But look at the exclusionary issue. Some examples of offerings. Well, the concept is you can't discriminate against people if you can't get them through the door in the first place. And what we, when we did some, we launched in 2016. When we did some survey work there, we did a big YouGov survey. And in the UK then, and I probably don't think it's much different now. If you're LGBT in the UK, you're 50% more likely to have no insurance at all. Um, The insurance sector has been designed to market to a certain type of person, I mean, you see these, you don't even notice them, which is a sign of unconscious bias. These impossibly glamorous white blonde parents with two gorgeous kids getting out of a Volvo with a golden retriever is often the image you see in insurance ads. And the thing is, that doesn't reflect most people's lifestyles. And yet sometimes you don't even pick up on the fact that that's somehow discriminatory because you see a hundred of those images and one perhaps with somebody from the BAME community in it. But also it means that you don't think that this product is for you. Insurance is not a, you know, you don't wake up on a nice sunny morning and think, oh, it's a lovely day, I should go and buy some insurance. If it's not marketed to you correctly, it's very easy for you to decide you don't want it. And I think it's a bit of a shame that, you know, for what markets itself as a protection industry, we actually don't really protect a vast swathe, of, I think, of the, the population. But I think when you get into some of the discriminations you can find, you know, you find uh, terminology that still refers to different gendered couples, You will refine definitions of families that don't refer, for instance, to surrogate children, which can be a big sector in the LGBT community. Um, And you can also find when you go, um, we've had experiences of people with claims handlers who are literally horrified when they walk into a flat and it's two men or two women. They have no idea what to do. Call centres that will assume your partner is of an opposite gender. You know, and I'm I've got the hide of a a rhino, but I'm tired of coming out to a call centre when I talk about my partner. And either the training or the inadvertent assumption is they'll say, what's her name? And we've had lots of long and varied conversations (laughs) at that stage. But the point is, it's all these little, I mean, microaggressions is a great word. And the thing is, it it puts, it gives people a very negative view more than the average population of insurance. And it simply puts people off buying the protection that they need.
0: Absolutely. I think that's a really interesting point as well. One I was going to ask is that... um, it sounds like the, the population is is generally underinsured. I mean, does anybody on the call want to talk about? You know, I, I know you all work in insurance, but perhaps I don't. You know, none of you, none of you sort of jumped into insurance at the age of eighteen with both feet gleefully. Um, do you know before before you entered the insurance industry, did you were you underinsured, and and was was the, you know the, the lack of products that felt sort of appealing to you part of the reason?
3: Uh, so for me, I found, I found that I chose insurance. It was something where it interested me at the time, and I made that step to go into it. Now, I, I would say that although I perhaps haven't been in the industry as long as, 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 long as well, every, <laughs> a, a, a wide majority of my colleagues, <laughs> um, I would say I have a good understanding and a breadth of knowledge But reading through a, a travel insurance document to double-check that I'm covered, as a member of the LGBT plus community, I, I would struggle. I know how to read a wording. I know how to. But if I am someone that I would consider as an insurance professional, what can we expect of our consumers? And our consumers, the way I would look at it is if you have, if, if you know that you have had a claim or something has gone wrong with, say, a phone company and they've overcharged you, If someone, if an insurance company looks at it and says that it's a gesture of goodwill that they're paying out, how does that make you feel? Because a gesture of goodwill is usually something that is a nice thing that is. is They're doing you a
0: favor. Yeah, they're not accepting responsibility. It was actually their mistake in the first place, but they're not going to admit that. So, you know, to stop you kicking up a fuss on Twitter or going to the consumer watchdog or whatever it is you might do, they give you a voucher.
3: Mm Mm-hmm. And exactly that. And to Steve's point, that is why I think Emerald is a fantastic company that has been set up to identify these challenges or limitations that we have in current policies and to make it right, to make it fair, to make it just and not wait for change to happen. And of course, I do apologize Steve. you could comment further, but I, that's why I think Emerald is a, it's, it's fantastic that they have made a
4: stand.
0: I would love to see love between my guests,
4: <laughs> <laughs> and I think I like to I like to think about it in in a number of dimensions because I think there's there's products and are products inclusive or not, and that may be obscured or otherwise by the wording or by the rating or various other attributes. But there's also the service, and the service is about how well you train your. Um, call centre staff, your claims handlers, etc, etc, to recognise that families come in different shapes and, and forms. Um, and to, again, uh, as, as, as Steve has said, try to train people not to make those leaps of assumption That immediately puts the caller on the back foot because then they kind of think, "Oh no, now I've got to have that conversation again. Can I be bothered to go through the conversation to explain to you why my partner isn't a he or my, you know, that why I do have a wife and yet my voice sounds distinctly female?" Um, And and I think that's where people can just be encouraged just to drop out, to opt out of that entire conversation. Yeah,
0: no, absolutely. I think um, I think there's a, you know, it's, it's a broader point, but even there's some very simple things that we haven't got right yet, generally. So I, for one, I'm fed up of having to enter a title on any form I fill in. My title is completely irrelevant. It's not a legal requirement. I You know, it doesn't it's matter. Gendered. It's gendered. It's all gendered you know, I, it doesn't matter. I need I, to
4: know my gender if I'm going to kind of book a table with your restaurant. You don't need to know it. Yeah,
0: sometimes I put Viscountess um, in, you know, just for fun. Um, but the other point I was going to make is that um, on the, uh, the, the the kind of discriminatory thing as well, there was a big piece in the news this week about family tickets for attractions and how you don't get much discount for a single parent family. Now, that that is a there, that's one of the earliest, simplest things to have spotted before you get into perhaps some of the more complexity um, of blended families and, and, and that kind of thing. So we haven't
4: even got those bits right. So it does feel like we're a long way behind. You may not, because too, too often it's two adults, two children. What yeah. right, If you've got more than two children, what if you've got only one yeah. adult? We were one adult and three kids. That's not that unusual. <laughs> um, Nigel, yes.
1: Yeah, on the on the gender one, the one that frustrates me, my, my wife is a doctor in psychology. And as soon as you drop the title from Mr. and Mrs. or whatever else to, to doctor, it immediately pops up gender. And I'm sitting there, I need to go and speak to someone in the underwriting community and go, help me understand this. Because at least in the UK, obviously with the gender directive, you're not allowed to, to rate based on gender. So I don't know why we ask whether the doctor is male or female in this instance. Uh, and they're, they're, they, again, are the only two options. It drives me mad. And then obviously you've seen people like um, Sam White recently um, uh, launch the Stella brand in Australia. So there's 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 a whole host of these things coming out that, that, are, that are really interesting. The one I was going to pick up on was the uh, the piece around product exclusivity or inclusion or exclusions, and I think it's really interesting because I actually did some um, early research quite a while ago now with some friends, and when I even suggested to them the, the idea of being a lgbt specific insurance products i was shouted at in unlike any other way i've ever had before from very good friends to go why would i be any different than anyone else and i'd love to get your experience or feedback on and i'm sure it's personal ultimately but i've never thought about it that way i thought it was actually quite good originally but when i tabled it i was yeah wrong
2: so it's yes, yeah, so, and we did get some pushback uh, when we before we launched from friends, same kind of dinner party. And most people would say, "Brilliant idea," and some people would say, "I don't see why I need anything different." And a lot of times, then it's a, it's a couple of things. It's it's some education, and that's not a bad thing. No surprise, most people who have insurance policies don't read them. Frankly, I know underwriters who don't read their own insurance policies in terms of the wording. Um, so the first thing is to explain. Here are things where you might not, you know, if I pay ten pounds for a premium and sorry, you're in front of me, and I just, and Nigel, you pay £10 of premium. Sometimes I'm, you're getting £10 worth of cover and I'm getting £9.50 worth of cover because there's something in my life that may be part of a travel experience that may not be part of yours and, and it's not included in terms of alternative family structure or something like that. And the other thing we've decided, because we made a mistake about it at the beginning, to be honest, is we, what we aren't is ghetto insurance. So we're not designed to be exclusively LGBT. But that was a pushback. People say... Why would I ensure, you know, someone said to me, uh, one of our investors said, look, he's 85. So you go with me on this one. He said, I don't, I don't buy gay times. I don't drink in Soho. I don't go on hot in Mykonos. Why would I want gay insurance? And I said, it's just because, well, it's not. Firstly, it's insurance. It's a bit like sometimes we label people's, so we can sometimes label a product. It's not uh, LGBT plus insurance. It's insurance. It just happens to make sure that whatever your gender, sexual orientation, etc., we offer you the same cover. And it's much more a thought-through product rather now. Some of the things we've changed have been specific. Um, as we get on to it, one of the reasons we don't offer life or longer-term protection products is that we'd love to, but with the company ethos, I'm unable to find a life critical illness or income protection cover that isn't in some way HIV phobic or transphobic. And, and we are arguing behind the scenes on that. But mm. until we get that fixed, I can't I can't offer a product that isn't available to trans people. I can't offer a product that still discriminates against people living with HIV. So the idea is it's supposed to be a, it's designed to be a big hug for whoever you are. That's not a marketing slogan. I mean, what we what we try and say that the byline for Emerald is ensuring today's diversity. It's not exclusive. It's supposed to be an inclusive for everyone. And most, not most, but a large swathe of our customers are not LGBT. So, so I think when you look at Emerald, it's, it's not designed to be exclusively LGBT, although that's a lot of our funnel. A lot of people who like what we do and are like-minded and also, don't kill me, have a fairly low view of other insurers, have moved on board with Emerald.
0: Yeah, no, it's, it's really interesting, particularly that point about life insurance and it's a sort of taking a moral or an ethical stance. You know, your your company has this particular set of principles and you will not diverge from them to offer a product that doesn't adhere to them. And perhaps that, you know, means that you are missing out on some business. That's a business decision. But to bring us back full circle, um, if you are, you know, if, you, if you've if you done the, the early steps and you've created a diverse workforce, does that then make it, and I think the answer to this is yes, but you may have a different perspective. Does that then make it, easier to make sure that the the, the products that you're offering um, are more inclusive. So if the people who work for you are more diverse, does that mean you think more about these things and you're less likely to offer ex-
4: uh, products that are exclusionary? Because I, I think so. That ought to be true, but it's dependent entirely around who's around your particular table for that product design. If it's only ever the same bunch of people with the same group think about what good looks like, then that's never going to get challenged. And so, you know, organisations really need to start to leverage. If they've got their, you know, large organisations like Aon, like like Marsh, um, are big enough to have their LGBT networks, their gender networks, their race networks. And But organisations are seldom using those and leveraging them to bring them to the table and say, let's have a different look at what we're offering. Is there anything that you can add to this that would make it a better product? And, you know, sadly, that, that for me, that's an opportunity that is being missed.
3: I completely agree. I think, I think it's something where it's, it's one step. It's one step to, to have a diverse workforce. And as Teresa says, it's something that you've got to bring people to the table. You've, you've either got to bring people to the table and create diversity amongst who you bring to the table, not just the same person every single time, or you you look towards perhaps agile working where you are setting up almost mini projects to get something done and to to find the best product uh, for, for the customer and not only the customer, but if the people in your own company wouldn't buy the product, then there may be a problem.
0: I always find that fascinating that that companies sell products that their own employees couldn't or wouldn't buy. It it feels like a a very obvious thing. But um, I do see your point, and particularly if you're talking about, you know, perhaps some companies that are using labels or going along with quotas. And you could have uh, 10 people from the, you know, around a table, all of whom have different sexual orientations, all of whom identify differently, all of whom have different colored, uh, people of different color, different ethnicity. Um, but if they all went to the same school and the same university and came out with the same degree, then that doesn't really help you a great deal because actually almost, I suppose it's almost a diversity of thinking that is, is, is much more useful, perhaps in those situations.
4: Yeah, you need people from different socioeconomic stratas, just l- different life experiences. Those will then give you, in conjunction with other aspects, a, a, you know, a very good, diverse
2: table. And I think the danger with LGBT networks, again, which, with that which just sounded a, a bit of a downer, is uh, there can be an element of tokenism. So an insurer can establish a great LGBT plus network, and the LGBT plus network can say, can I have thirty thousand pounds for a float for Pride in London? Yeah, of course you can. Great. Can we offer life insurance to transgender people? No. You know, so so hmm. then you get to the question of what are we? Do- you know, sometimes I think there's a disconnect between companies patting themselves on the back because they're doing well for their employees, but not realizing at the same time, that, you know, if you follow that through on a moral ground, you should be patting yourself on the back because you're doing the same for your diverse customers. I think all too often that just gets forgotten because. You have a float in Pride in London. You can stick a rainbow flag in your window in July.
0: Yeah, that's definitely something that I think has come up quite recently. Is um, I can't remember what the term for it is, but it's it's kind of you know a virtue signalling. That's it. Yeah, uh, pink so washing.
4: pink yeah. wash. Yeah, I was thinking of pink wash. <laughs> but it, it, all of them are good. All of them are good. But but we need to duck that. Yeah, yeah. We need to avoid that. I think. All right. If if companies
0: are you know do do want to do better here and if there is anybody who's listening to this who's thinking yeah we're not great at inclusivity we're not great at diversity I haven't even thought about some of these issues before are there particular kind of um are there any resources
4: that they found particularly helpful or perhaps they've put together themselves well I so if I can jump in by saying um That you don't have to be a global organization that's massive in order to have and and you don't have to hire a diversity professional, although probably some diversity professionals will be gurring at me right now. Um, You don't have to have networks for every single flavor of diversity thread in order to to start becoming more diverse and more inclusive and thinking about these things. It doesn't necessarily need a massive budget or, you know, 1,000-plus employees. Um, You can start small. You can keep it tight. And actually, there's an argument to say that small organisations can be a lot more agile about changing things than a global organisation like Aon that has to go all the way up to, you know, Chicago and back down again in order to, um, to make a small change. Sometimes your, your small companies, you know, just can move a lot more swiftly. So I think I would dissuade anybody from thinking that just you know if you can't afford to hire a team of diversity professionals and your you know your employee base is too small to nurture some of these networks, use um, the cross industry networks. So you've got L- for LGBT, you've got you, plus you've got um, Link for. Um, for the Bayman B- B- culture, you've got I can. For you know, we've got a families network. Uh, we've got a gender inclusion um, in gin. So there are lots. Of, our industry is quite good and quite novel from from the fact that other industries might have a cross industry LGBT network. Um, I'm thinking about interlaw for law. I'm thinking about interbank for bank, etc. But but we've taken that and then we've we've evolved similar for each of the different strands. So use those as great resources. There are a hub of people who are very focused on improving that aspect and viewing life through that lens. And they'll be able to give you um, speakers. They'll be able to give you advice. They'll be able to point you in the right direction for the appropriate resources at that time. So my my top tip is use link Gin you know, each of those cross-industry networks. And um, Inclusion at Lloyd's um, has a, a great little site that, that provides um, direction to those networks.
0: Brilliant. That's great advice. Thank you so much. Anybody else, have anything they'd like to, to point people towards?
3: I would probably say um, on terms of action, I think it I, I agree with Teresa where you do, we want to see people coming together across companies to find solutions and find ways to, um, to improve inclusivity, and that's—it's fantastic that Teresa was part of setting up and founding Link, which is the LGBT plus insurance network. And perhaps people in other industries that may may be looking at insurance as maybe not as diverse as they they would like to see. What we need to start doing is one or two people coming together but then tell their two friends, that tell someone else and start small, start small and build your network. And that's where it comes back to. We always say networking, network, network, network. And that is how I think we need to, we need to build momentum.
0: Brilliant. And um, Steve, is there anything that hasn't been mentioned?
2: Yeah. I was just thinking, yeah, because we tend to, throw the ind- when you talk about LGBT, there's often a focus on uh, trans stuff. It's a very hot topic. I'm sure. Trans people don't want to be a hot topic, but it has been decided that they are. Um, So also, there's also some specific, I mean, some consultings that are very good I, you know, um, gendered intelligence. I think global butterflies are very good. And sometimes if you're trying to explain some of the difficulties a transgender person faces in call center, product policy, customer experience, you know, sometimes hearing somebody's individual lived experience can be very powerful. It doesn't necessarily provide answers, but it can sometimes energize people who haven't gone through that experience to think, geez, how do we actually make this better? Because there are lots of people like that out there. And and look, any, any, any industry has its bubble and insurance has its bubble. And we often don't reach outside of it and understand that it's a sector that's supposed to supply the whole country. And yet we see a tiny part in our everyday experience. So hearing about other people's lived experience for small companies and for big companies, I think is invaluable.
4: And also doing more work about figuring out who those underinsured segments are. You know, I know that CII have done a a, a great big chunk of work on on the fact that women um, are often, you know, the most underinsured, you know, by comparison to men. So, you know, again, if we if there were more studies that highlighted that and where we're failing, you know, our our population, our then I think that that might help throw throw a light on some of these areas where just people are opting out. They're self-selecting not to get engaged with the conversation because they find it, frankly, unfriendly.
0: And absolutely. If you want to take a, a cynical approach to that, then you should say, you know, if you go and find out who's underinsured, that gives you a whole new market to sell insurance to so you can make some money. <laughs> um, wow. It. Is a rather cynical approach, but I think perhaps we're gonna we're gonna leave it there for today. Um, that wraps up this discussion. Thank you so much to my guests and to Nigel, of course. Um, where can our listeners find out more about you, uh, Steve?
2: Sure. Um, website is emeraldlife.co.uk, and my Twitter is at wardlawsteve.
4: Perfect, Teresa. How about you? Oh, you can find me on Twitter at t farrenson. Uh, but I'd really like to put a shout out to Link and, um which is www.lgbtinsurancenetwork.co.uk.
3: And George? Uh, you can find me on uh, LinkedIn. Uh, just search Georgina Weeks. Um, and I'll follow on uh, Theresa's thing and give a plug to uh, ICANN, the Insurance Cultural Awareness Network. Perfect. Thank you
1: so much. And Nigel, how about you? As always, fighting the good fight on Twitter at Nigel Walsh depends on your definition of a good fight we won't go into scooters today
0: uh and you can find me on twitter at sarah kachansky as always you can find the show on twitter at Intech insiders or our 11fs linkedin page that is 11 colon fs if you like what you've heard this week don't forget to subscribe to our podcast which you can find on spotify and your other podcast providers short tech insider will be back very soon and until then
4: stay safe goodbye